You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 21st of August 2021 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in Marylebone, in the heart of London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Today, our regular guest, Vincent McAvinney, will join me to review the day's newspapers. Then, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, gives us his weekly column, plus... We did learn from the confected outrage of assorted Trumpists at the spectacle of the Taliban putting their feet up on the desks of Kabul's presidential palace that the GOP seems to have had a rethink about the virtue of unruly rabbles of obdurate malcontents storming the bastions of elected power. Andrew Muller reflects on the week that was. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday. President Joe Biden promised Americans in Afghanistan that we will get you home, but warned the evacuation mission would be risky and dangerous. Biden, in a speech and answering questions from reporters at the White House, sought to answer critics who say his administration misjudged the speed with which the Taliban would take over and poorly planned the evacuations of Americans and Afghan allies after the 20-year-long US presence there. Australian police patrolled the streets and blocked transport into the centre of Sydney today to prevent a planned anti-lockdown protest, as the country reported a record high daily number of new COVID-19 infections. Officials reported a total of 886 cases in New South Wales and Victoria states, with the vast bulk in Sydney, which is the epicentre of the Delta variant-fuelled outbreak. And German Chancellor Angela Merkel used her final official visit to Russia to tell President Vladimir Putin to free Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny. But the Kremlin leader rebuffed her, saying the jailing was unrelated to politics. The talks, as Merkel prepares to step down following elections next month, coincided with the first anniversary of Navalny's poisoning, an incident that strained Russia-Germany ties. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Now, joining me for a look at today's papers is Vincent McAvinney, a reporter and Monocle 24 regular. Vinny, uh, welcome back to Good the morning. studio. I think we were here yesterday morning, weren't you we? You were, yeah. <laughs> uh, gosh, 24 hours, doesn't it's just uh, it's all a bit of a blur, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it is August. <laughs> it is that time of the year where it all kind of just mm, peters around. Yeah. Apart from, of course, the one huge story that's everywhere, which is Afghanistan, and we will absolutely come on to that. But I wanted to start in Canada because Justin Trudeau has called a snap election. Yeah, that is right. Justin Trudeau, uh, who was at once the kind of wonder liberal boy uh, on the scene of world politics, had a very difficult time back in uh, 2019 when he uh, was uh, last uh, re-elected. And that was because there were a couple of scandals within his government uh, about sort of oil uh, pipelines and things like that. But there was also, of course, the blackface photos. And it got so desperate for him that he uh, did manage to get a kind of last minute endorsement from President Barack Obama who came out and went to bat for him and said he wasn't racist and he was a good world leader uh, to kind of keep him in place. But 
Trudeau didn't have a majority. Uh, and so now he has called a snap election uh, for the September 20th uh, date. Uh, and he is hoping that he can get a bounce in his handling of the COVID pandemic. They've had a decent rollout now of the vaccine scheme. 63% of Canadians are fully vaccinated, one of the highest rates in the world. There's been stimulus packages uh, as well. And so Trudeau is hoping uh, that that will mean that he might be able to get a majority. There are polls in the field which given about a 45% chance of getting one right now. His opponent is is quite um, little known, only been in the role uh, for about a year or so. So we'll see whether or not this could give him the comeback that he uh, that he wants. Uh, interestingly, the, the Economist headline on this is Justin Trudeau calls a snap election in Canada. The country does not need an election now, but the Prime Minister does. Yeah, that's right. You know, many people, it's the last thing that they want because there are, you know, still so much uh, uncertainties about COVID and the recovery, about what the economy will do. There's also been problems in Canada with its relations with China over the uh, arrest of the Huawei uh, chief financial officer, who's also, I think, the daughter of the the company's founder, uh, and the Canadians that are being held in response in China. You've also got the Afghan policy. And, of course, those really uh, shocking stories that came out recently about the discovery of mass graves uh, of Indigenous children at residential schools where they were trying to forcibly assimilate them uh, into white culture. So there is a lot going on domestically in Canada. But minority governments, it says in this piece in the FT, tend to only last about two years in Canada. So it seems like Justin Trudeau has decided to get on the front foot and, and try and get himself that majority. And he can use it to his effect. If he doesn't overplay it, he can talk about the benefits of having a strong uh, government. You know, it feels like Theresa May, you know, a strong, stable government with a working majority is what he will need to help Canadians through the recovery. Yeah. Uh, now, I know you had an incredibly busy day yesterday. Uh, and at one point, you were in Westminster covering the whole story about the British Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, who's been called on to resign for his handling of the Afghan crisis. Yeah, a week is a long time in politics. Last weekend, Dominic Raab was at a Cretan resort enjoying the sunshine with his family. This week, he is in uh, weekend, he's in the FCO fighting for his career. Uh, that is because he's been criticised for what is being briefed by sources and leaked out of the Foreign Office as just basically uh, being uncontactable during this holiday. He was away from the 6th of August and he didn't want to be engaged in any form of work, despite what is largely the biggest you know, foreign diplomatic crisis in Britain since... Suez, uh, effectively. Uh, and so it's all about these incidents last weekend where the Foreign Office contacted him wanting him to call his Afghan counterpart to facilitate the evacuation of people like the translators. Now, Dominic Raab didn't do this. He delegated it to a junior minister. It's now come out that that junior minister didn't even make the call. Uh, and so there's been heavy criticism of Dominic Raab for this. Reports from other holidaymakers at the resort say that he spent most of the weekend on the beach. So, you know, we were all seeing glued. I mean, I was pretty glued last weekend to the pictures, just the speed of, you know, on Friday night, oh, maybe, you know, Kabul will fall in a few weeks' time to 48 hours later. I don't know why, when you're in one of the highest offices of state, you wouldn't be getting back immediately when this is under your purview. And so it's been a funny week. So there's been, uh, you know, heavy criticism of Raab, uh, particularly that debate that they had on Wednesday. Dominic Raab on Thursday then put out some images from himself making phone calls from behind his desk at the Foreign Office. That drew even more criticism from opposition parties saying, well, that's where you should have been all last week. This is too little, too late, and calling for him to resign. Now, the Prime Minister last night said that... um 
the Foreign Secretary had his full confidence. But that's something we've heard from this Prime Minister before, a few weeks ago, with Matt Hancock. Do you remember him? Uh, and those office uh, frisky escapades, let's call them. <laughs> and uh, we know one thing about Boris Johnson. He is incredibly conflict-averse. He doesn't like to be hated. Uh, and so, you know, he isn't going to sack Dominic Raab. But we'll see if anything else comes out over the weekend, whether the pressure mounts so much that Raab has to resign because Boris Johnson won't sack him, even though with Matt Hancock he didn't sack him. Hancock resigned and then Boris Johnson oddly tried to claim a rewrite and said that he had sacked him. Uh, so, you know, he is very much where the vein of where public opinion is at certain points. But for now, Raab is safe. But tellingly, and this is something we said yesterday, and it was something that Labour wheeled out as well after our, after our chat here, Dominic Raab wrote a little book in 2012 called Britannia Unchained with most of the people in the big jobs in government right now. Liz Truss, who's Trade Secretary, Priti Patel, who's the Home Secretary. Uh, and it was basically, it was kind of the real dawn of where Brexit and the Brexit movement really seeded itself in the Conservative backbenchers. That was a generation that was really kind of anti the EU and we all know what happened over the next few years. But Dominic Raab himself wrote in that book that Britons are amongst the laziest and least productive workers in the world. Well, now that is a charge being put against him whilst he has held one of the highest officers of state. And what's also really interesting, I think, is that this leak came from his department. So clearly his the people working under him would like him to go. Clearly, yeah. He, the reports that he's been, uh, you know, he is, he's quite an odd character. Um, he's quite cold. Uh, and the reports were that, you know, particularly with ambassadors, the, the British ambassador there, who's done phenomenal work on the ground, literally handwriting visa forms himself with his team in the middle of all this chaos at the airport to try and evacuate these people. He He's been posting a few videos and, and what a brave and kind of exemplary example uh, of, of a diplomat and what they should stick around and do. But there are reports that Dominic Raab you know, hadn't been contacting ambassadors at all in the region to see how they were, that he, he's kind of detached. Um, and so there was, you know, questions about, about this. And so it's interesting that these leaks are coming out. There are, though, some accusations about the civil service having dropped the ball because it seems simultaneously the permanent secretary, which in Britain is the most senior civil servant within a department of the Home Office, the Foreign Office and the Ministry of Defence are all on holiday at the same time. Those are the three departments responsible for the evacuation of Kabul. How on earth, when the signal came from America, did they all stay on holiday as well is a bit of a question. We do have... And, you know, I'm someone who works a lot uh, in August. A lot of journalists kind of disappear. But I, for years, you know, for the last 10 years, I've, I've worked pretty much all August in and around Westminster covering stuff. I think there is a major problem with you know, the British civil service, civil service is impressive on global standards. But they do have a continuity of problem sometimes, particularly with continuity of government. We saw this when Boris Johnson was sick with COVID last year. It, you know, there's no designated vice you know, Prime Minister. There's some. We have a Deputy Prime Minister sometimes, but it's not a kind of, you know, it's not the way a Vice Presidency exactly works. Um, but, there, you know, we saw that problem with, with Johnson is that in the confusion afterwards, it was really who was running the government. And particularly when the Prime Minister's way, there's always questions, well, who's running it? Oh, the Prime Minister's doing it from holiday, but can he really do that? Um, but particularly with kind of, you know, 
this time of year, particularly when you know so many people are away and things, there are you know you shouldn't in most organisations you probably wouldn't get all three of those people when there is that situation happening being allowed to leave at the same time. So why has that happened within the Whitehall system? Absolutely, uh, and of course all of this prompted by those terrible, terrible scenes that we've been seeing in Afghanistan: people clinging to planes and so on, and just desperate people trying to get out. And that's what Andrew Tuck has been reflecting on in his column this week. The images that I cannot shake from this week are of a group of men clinging to the side of a US C-17 plane as it roars down the runway at Kabul airport and lifts into the sky. And then of the tiny dots caught in one shot. It's two of them plummeting back to earth. These pictures were eerily also a visual echo of where this story started and of another series of grim pictures that 20 years ago were seared into people's minds. Those photographs were of people falling from the Twin Towers after the terrorist attacks by Al-Qaeda, an event that would lead to an invasion and now what can only be regarded as a capitulation. A few weeks ago, as the final drawdown of US troops approached and the Taliban mobilised, we commissioned a story about how the media in the country were reporting the story and we found a writer in Kabul to take on the commission. By last week, we knew that the story would need to become something very different. And we also knew that the writer, Charlie Faulkner, would now be there at the fall of Kabul. Also on Friday, we put in place a plan to make sure that we would have all of our coverage lined up for the weekend and that the Monocle Minute would live up to its name and be up to the second when it arrived in inboxes on Monday morning. The same conversations were happening at every news outlet. But what seems strange is that many in the political classes seemed so blasé, so unable to sense the chaos that would soon hit. Here in the UK, we had a foreign minister who decided that his best plan was to stay on a family holiday in Crete until the Sunday. And even now, he sees no shame in that decision. The instinct that you need to have to cover on the ground events like this as a journalist is something that's hard to explain. It's a special mix of calmness, of being able to read the nuances of a situation and know how to keep yourself safe and also know when to take a chance. Charlie Faulkner, the woman commissioned to write our story, is still in Kabul and has told her editor here at Monocle that she has no plans to leave at the moment. And of course, nor will or can many Afghan writers. On Thursday, I read the emerging reports about one of the young men who jumped onto the plane and who then became entangled in its landing gear, his battered body extracted when the jet landed in Qatar. The pictures of Zaki Anwari show a handsome young man, just 19, a man born after the fall of the Taliban and who had been educated at the French-American school in Kabul and who was a good footballer. Somehow, seeing his face makes it even harder to imagine what he was thinking. Did he believe that this plan would really work? Was it just despair and a mad split-second decision that sealed his fate? The same combustible mix of instincts that sees a person, say, jump from a tower, climb with their child into a dinghy for a perilous crossing. On Thursday night, I went to see the revival of Nick Payne's play, Constellations. It's a two-hander, 
and the cast changes regularly to give a different twist to this story of a beekeeper and a cosmologist and of how small decisions can shape our fates. As you watch the play, you come to realise that we get through life by trusting that there are invisible crash barriers in place that will ensure our lives mostly trundle along in an OK way. But sometimes, fate steps in to play a darker hand. In Constellations, the characters are soon faced with life-or-death decisions. The guardrails are gone, all could unravel in seconds. I think you should have a look at the photographs of Zaki Anwari, because I promise he's not that different from any of us. He's certainly no fool. He's just a man who saw all his hopes vanishing with that taxiing plane. And yes, he decided that clinging on was his best option. Thank you very much there to Andrew Tuck. And of course, uh, so many people are taking any route out that they possibly can, uh, not just planes, but also by road. But what we're seeing across Europe is Turkey and Greece uh, have have told the the European Union that they won't take responsibility for Afghan refugees. Uh, This covered in in many, many places. Newsweek has a a big uh, story about why they won't do this. And of course, we're seeing these pictures of this enormous wall that's suddenly gone up in, in, in Greece. Yeah, that's right. The fence has been erected. It is absolutely massive. Uh, in Evros, uh, a region at Greece's border with Turkey, it is 40 kilometres long and has an inbuilt surveillance system. Uh, and it is about a part now in a surge of migrants uh, coming from Afghanistan. And as you say, they're the country saying that, you know, that they will need European Union help, uh, that they can't cope with this wave. I mean, just to, before we turn into, into Europe, there is, of course, the, the flow itself. So we know that the deadline is at the end of this month for America to kind of have this kind of stalemates ceasefire with the Taliban to do the work out of the airport. Some really interesting questions being raised, though, about why America gave up Bagram Air Base uh, only six, seven weeks ago, because they gave that up without notification, actually told the Afghan government that's obviously now fallen after they had left. And there were pictures of people going in and finding all kinds of things there and vehicles and, you know, tools and all sorts of stuff. But the, the real question there is, why was that not planned as the route if they controlled that space to get civilians out, to get all these people out? The military stays there and then the military departs. You know, that that should all why was that not the plan rather than using a civilian airport which they didn't control in a, in a you know part of the city? So that, that's one thing that I think, you know, really a question for how this has all been handled. Mm. But the flows out, you know, after those flights, it is then for anyone who isn't entitled to that. So your ordinary Afghani um who uh, uh, sorry you're ordinary afghan uh, who you know doesn't want to live under the taliban but who didn't work you know for americans or for british so didn't get that evacuation route you know how do they get out of the country and one of the things that the taliban is reportedly doing uh, is kind of seizing border control points and and trying to make it as difficult as possible for people to leave but inevitably i mean thinking you know listening to that um piece there, you will have young people who never lived under the Taliban, who have had education, who have had freedoms, who have had access to things like the internet and seen a lot of the rest of the world and stuff, who will just try to to leave and it'll be a very difficult journey out for them. Uh, But then when they, you know, they are people who are actively rejecting uh, 
the sort of Islamist ideals, this warped view of Sharia law that the Taliban want. They are wanting to live in, you know, in relative freedom, in safety and in democracy, things that Europe champions and, and says that it champions and, and tries to kind of promote around the world. But at the same time, European leaders are very fearful of a political crisis like we saw after the 2015 influx uh, of refugees from Syria. And you are seeing them go on the front foot. So you've seen uh, Emmanuel Macron, who was horses up for elections, re-election soon, uh, taking to the TV airwaves uh, a few days ago saying that there needed to be a combined European effort to sort of see off a, a flow of migrants. They are worried that if once again, uh, you know, there are migrants coming and there is support in, in polling for, for refugees coming from Af Afghanistan. But at the same time, the capitalisation that f the far right can make uh, on those images, on the kind of idea that it's a you know Muslim invasion of Europe, on, on all those claims that we saw with Syria, that can really mess with domestic politics, as we've seen so detrimentally across Europe in the past couple of years. Uh, and so it seems that EU leaders are unwilling to try and kind of facilitate the kind of things that they did a few years ago. And I mean, you're absolutely right to point out that by and large, these people who are leaving are educated, they reject extremism, they want to work, particularly in the case of women and they're leaving because they've been told they can't have jobs. These are exactly the type of people that we want within our communities. Exactly the type of people, especially with Europe, where most European countries now have falling birth rates, in particularly in Western Europe. You have falling birth rates. You know, when you look ahead to the projections in somewhere in the UK about just the, just the tax base needed to pay the, the, the huge... Well, the, in the UK, for instance, it'll go soon, I think, the triple lock on things like pensions and stuff like that. But just thinking about the, the when the baby boomers really do start to you know need care home access and where do you get the kind of carers and where do you get the staff from i'm not saying that that's the jobs that these people need to do but just just in terms of population and, and the, where the population pyramid is there is a real problem coming down the line in most european countries that they don't have enough young people working to provide the tax base to then pay for the services to look after the kind of baby boomer generation and so you know these are people who are making it clear in the journey that they're making you know they're not if they if they wanted you know a jihad they would be staying, you know, under the rule of the Taliban. They would be signing up and, and living there in what, you know, in you know what what is what they're wanting to to build. Um, the people that are leaving and walking hundreds and thousands of miles are the people who are rejecting that, who want to be in your society, who for twenty years, through, you know, the kind of soft power work of. of of Britain, of, of NATO allies, of the US. Um, you know, you think about the British Council, all the kind of projects that they ran in country to try and get people onto the ideas of these values to kind of sell the idea of liberal Western democracy and the freedoms and art and expression and women's rights. So these surely are the people that we should be taking in. And what about compassion? Yeah. And responsibility. I mean, as has been pointed out widely in the press everywhere yeah. today and indeed all week. I mean, and it, I mean, you know, that is, I've been talking to soldiers all week and, you know, they, their mental health feels fragile, definitely, because a lot of them had reconciled what they did, the friends that they lost, the psychological scars and the physical scars that they did by thinking that they had managed to build, uh, help build a country where, particularly they all mentioned women, you know, it felt like they had done something where a country where women had had no rights and been so oppressed and, you know, there was, uh, you know, let's not call it child marriage, let's call it what it is, like rape. grooming a paedophilia and rape. That, yeah. That's what it is. That's what it is. And and they felt that they had helped to build a country where that wouldn't happen and there was a bright hope for the future. And now they feel quite despondent that that's not the case. And some of them say, you know, this, as you know, it wasn't costing, you know, there was, okay, part of it is that the 
Trump had done the deal and so the Taliban had kind of scaled down their operations against Western forces. But it wasn't a massive deployment anymore. It wasn't that big a cost anymore that actually, you know, you look at how we deploy, you know, it needed a you know, you hate to say decades more, but needed more time in the way that we spent time in Germany, in Japan, and we spent time, you know, in South Korea to keep those people who are just on the cusp of adulthood, who are kind of hitting 20, who have grown up in a new Afghanistan, waiting another 10 years for them to kind of be in the starting to take the positions of power in the country and to strengthen the kind of democratic institutions and to strengthen everything. Yes, there was rampant corruption, but they might have helped to kind of phase that generation out a bit. It, it was worth maybe sticking in longer. Absolutely. And quite extraordinary that that was not foreseen. But predicting the future is a tricky business, as Andrew Muller says. We learned this week that predicting the future is probably best left to the professionals with their crystal balls, runic stones, coffee grains, goats entrails and what have you. It is not a lark for the enthusiastic amateur. The Taliban is not the North Vietnamese army. They're not, they're not remotely comparable in terms of capability. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of an embassy in the, of the United States from Afghanistan. It is not at all comfortable. We learned that the five weeks since US President Joe Biden made that claim has been a long time in Afghan politics. After 20 years of attritional war, the Taliban rolled Afghanistan up in a matter of days. President Biden sulked back from vacation to offer an updated assessment of the situation, from which we learned that there had been an evolution in the United States' view of Afghanistan, from budding democracy, in which America had been willing to invest decades and trillions, Two, here's a quarter, call someone who cares. We gave them every chance to determine their own future. We could not provide them was the will to fight for that future. But we learned that while little in American politics these days is truly bipartisan, being wrong about Afghanistan most certainly is. Let us now peer back through the swirling mists of time to about a month ago when someone was positing the looming American withdrawal as a great American triumph. I started the process, all the troops are coming back home, they couldn't stop the process. 21 years is enough, don't we think? 21. We learned, however, that the astonishing shambles broadcast from Kabul this week had at least had a usefully humbling, nay calming effect on America's public discourse, as politicians and pundits on both sides of the aisle desisted from their usual inane sectarian bun-hurling about every goddamn thing to reflect somberly and maturely on what went wrong and what lessons might be constructively absorbed. Ha 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 ha, no really, what is the weather like on your planet? planet, etc. We learned that the Republican Party, usually as enthusiastic about citing George Orwell's 1984 as they are unenthusiastic about reading it, had gone full Ministry of Truth. As the Taliban ambled into Kabul, the GOP removed the page from its website, which bragged of President Donald Trump's sagacity in securing the peace deal which had made this advance possible. 
Still, we did learn from the confected outrage of assorted Trumpists at the spectacle of the Taliban putting their feet up on the desks of Kabul's presidential palace that the GOP seems to have had a rethink about the virtue of unruly rabbles of obdurate malcontents storming the bastions of elected power. That was an extremely clever satirical reference to the events of January 6th in Washington DC and the subsequent defences of that attempted putsch by Republicans and we would not have wanted you to miss it and so that is why we are explaining it at this time. Hmm, I see. Very clever. Back in Kabul, meanwhile, we learned from an altogether odd news conference thrown by the Taliban that Afghanistan's reinstalled rulers do have an amount in common with the conservative headbanger tendency of the nation they had outlasted. This question should be asked to those people who are uh, claiming to be promoters of freedom of speech, uh, who do not allow uh, publication of all information. I can ask Facebook uh, company. This question should be asked to them. Cancel culture comes for the Taliban. Is nobody safe, etc.? But what we mostly learned this week, and very much not for the first time, is that things for the actual people of Afghanistan, always pretty rugged at the best of times, are about to become much harder. And we learned perhaps of a benchmark to aim at in terms of a response, especially from countries which find themselves party to this week's abandonment. And we learned it from Spencer Cox, Republican governor of Utah, who has featured occasionally in these monologues, generally for being annoyingly difficult to dislike. Just last week, for example, Cox shared with his social media following a letter from an enraged constituent demanding that he change his surname on the grounds that it was foul, dirty and obscene, and furthermore, possibly communist. Well, sure, why not? We missed this at the time, for which we can only apologise. But we learned this week of a much more serious correspondent from, rather than to, the governor's desk. Governor Cox wrote to President Biden, and it's worth quoting at reasonable length, as now read by our plain, big-hearted, common decency desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. I recognize Utah plays no direct role in shaping U.S. diplomatic or military policy but we have a long history of welcoming refugees from around the world and helping them start their lives in a new country. As you already know, Utah's history guides our approach to refugees. Our state was settled by refugees fleeing religious persecution 170 years ago. Their descendants have a deep understanding of the danger and pain caused by forced migration and an appreciation for the wonderful contribution of refugees in our communities. Please advise us in the coming days and weeks how we can assist. So we've learned that someone, at least, is stretching out a hand to the huddled masses yearning to breathe free and so forth. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. 
Many thanks there to Andrew Muller. And of course, there are other masses yearning to break free, and that's uh, around about half the population of Scotland. What a link. To be believed. Uh, tell us now, the, uh, the, the, um, the Scottish Parliament's pro-independence majority has really been cemented, I suppose, by this, this um, groundbreaking power-sharing agreement between the SNP and the Scottish Greens. Tell us more about this, Vincent. Yeah. You didn't go for the Mel Gibson impression there of freedom. (laughs) It did cross my mind, mind, I have to say. Thank God for my better judgment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the first time in the UK a Green Party has kind of entered into a governing situation. So the SNP, Scottish National Party, uh, and the uh, Scottish Greens have unveiled a power-sharing deal. This is after there were uh, elections uh, for the Scottish Parliament earlier this year, uh, where they failed to get a majority. Uh, They fell one seat short, but the Greens had eight seats, uh, and so they have decided to come to a deal. Um, And the uh, SNP leader, Nicola Sturgeon, yes, they unveiled it with the Green Party. They've got co-leaders, so they unveiled it yesterday. Now, this, for the first time, kind of puts in a majority that back independence in uh, the Scottish uh, uh, Parliament. They are calling once again for a referendum on independence. The last one was held back in 2014. It's something that consistently Boris Johnson uh, and the Westminster government have rejected, saying that it was a once in a generation uh, event. That's what everyone said it was. And, uh, you know, voters rejected independence 54 to 45 percent. And Nicola Sturgeon's party uh, has had a kind of couple of difficult years. The base of the party is agitated and agitated very hard for this second referendum but she's had to delay it and delay it knowing that actually the polling reveals that there isn't a majority. It was always a wait until there was a clear sign. She's had a lot of trouble with the former leader Alex Salmond who they, uh, you know, she went from protege to uh, enemy number one for Alex Salmond and so that caused a lot of problems and grief as well but they have managed to kind of do good performances in, in Westminster elections returning a number of MPs. But what's really interesting about this agreement is obviously they've got a big opportunity with the COP26 coming in uh, autumn to, you know, put green issues on the world stage and they'll get to have meetings with, you know, the likes of President Biden. But... You know, the the case for Scottish independence, where it, where the struggle is, is on how you finance this new independent country. Uh, and now, it would, you know, it would be out of the EU as well. It would have to apply for EU membership and, and, and whether or not that's backed by the Scottish people, whether you'd have to have a referendum on that or whether the government, a new independent government would do that immediately unilaterally. Uh, and then where does the money come from to pay for all of this? Uh, because... You know, the North, part of the SNP's calculation back in 2014 was revenues from North Sea oil and gas. Um, And at the time, there was even a problem there where a lot of the figures, and as I recall, I I was up there for six weeks covering it, and my memory is that the figures that they generated in the manifesto that they put out were for autumn 2013 oil prices, which at the time I think had just rocketed up into the kind of $130, $140 per barrel mark on, on Brent. Um, and then by the time the referendum came around, they had halved. And so that was the question that we, we, I remember we were constantly putting to them. is like, well, where's the money going to come from? Because you're basing your economic projections on a commodity, which uh, one is running out, two people are turning away from, and three can oscillate wildly in price. Uh, but, you know, the Green Party in Scotland are adamant that there should be no fossil fuel extraction from the North Sea. And Talking to people, I've, I've done stories on North Sea or in, you know, in recent years, you have classifications for 
ease of access into those resources. And you obviously you have like categories A, B, C, D, uh, the A ones. Those are the ones that you use first, easier to access. And you're roughly, someone explained to me, down at like the D category where it takes a big investment, a lot more technology. It's a lot trickier to get those resources. And so whilst the, the price... Uh, was lower and, and supply was coming from you know OPEC nations that was kind of flooding the market it didn't wasn't cost effective to do so you have seen huge redundancies in places like Aberdeen which is the kind of Scottish oil centre and um, that's a city in the northeast of Scotland so you know how is the SNP going to kind of now finance this move into independence there was also uh, information out this week uh, about the state of the budget deficit in Scotland being quite significantly high I think it was up at 22 percent um, higher than the rest of the UK uh, and so that is the question now, as they do this deal, you know, the the, the Greens are further left than the SNP, uh, but also, you know, want, you know, want basically a policy that then where is the money going to come from for independence? Yeah. But as you say, the British government, Westminster, is not going to allow this refer- referendum. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of the speculation in Westminster is that, the government is trying to scrap the Fixed Term Parliament Act, which was put in place at the foundation of the coalition in 2010, which was to secure the kind of coalition. It makes it, Because prior to that, British prime ministers could, you know, you could call a general election whenever you wanted. It was in the power of the prime minister. You just drove to a Buckingham Palace and asked the Queen to dissolve the government and she would grant you that wish. And so that's where... You know, you were you had a maximum that over that you couldn't oversee five years, but it didn't have to be set at five years. Essentially, um, the coalition government put the Fixed Term Parliament Act in place that changed that to secure it, and it lasted. Uh, and now uh, you basically have the situation where the government wants to get rid of it and be able to put the power back into Boris Johnson's hands. We had an election in twenty December twenty nineteen. That was purely to to get the majority Boris Johnson needed whilst he became leader to get his Brexit deal through. No one wants a winter election again. Politicians don't want one. People don't want one. Journalists don't want one. That election was a slog in the depth of winter for for everyone. And so you're not going to have a winter election. So then it's does it fall into summer 2014? Uh, 2024. But there is actually speculation in Westminster that Boris Johnson might pull it even further forward and bring it down to summer 2023 uh, and say to the uh, say to um, the SNP effectively, you know, who want this referendum in basically late 2024, they've signalled, uh, well, you're, uh, we'll, we'll have a general election instead. And we'll see how the voters of Scotland decide whether or not they back the SNP with, uh, you know, with giving and sending all the MPs back as SNP MPs or whether Conservative ones or Labour ones, uh, you know, split that vote and that'll be your test because, you know, the the position of the the British the Westminster government is that they can just simply say no, mm. uh, and so then what happens? Does Nicola Sturgeon get forced into a Catalonia situation where she tries to declare one that you know is legally questionable, and, and what happens after that? Yeah, yeah. Well, Scotland may not be independent and may never be independent, but it is possible to be independent and run free in Scotland as this yeah. bizarre story. Very bizarre. <laughs> I mean, what are you doing, April twenty fifth, twenty ninth, twenty? 22. Well, because I know what's coming, I can tell you I'm very definitely tidying my stock, sock drawer there. Okay, I'm busy. Okay, okay. I thought you were going to say you're booked in for a festival or something. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're not if you're not busy, how do you fancy spending fifteen thousand pounds? 
to run a 120-mile ultramarathon that is being described by its founder as the world's first luxury wilderness ultramarathon. I would actually pay that not to so do that it. That is, so, you know, an oxymoron yeah. juxtaposition <laughs> if I ever heard one. And, you know, this is a, a, a company that's set up, to, they're going to have 40 runners who are going to do this track uh, over the course of these four days. Uh, you know, they, they, the, the amount is eyebrow-raising, but they'll be, you know, glamping in luxury yurts, there'll be butlers, there'll be transfers via speedboats in the locks. And there's a picture, and, you know, pictures can be put in just for illustrative purposes, but it does mention that there'll be, like, you know, high-class banquet food. The picture is of oysters and crab. Can you imagine running a marathon for each day for four days and then deciding that you're going to tuck into shellfish. I can't think of anything <laughs> worse to eat during a marathon. You know, perhaps, I'm being unfair, that perhaps that's not the food, but, I, you know, yeah, it just... Is, is there a market for this? Do you know, I think there might be. I think that if you're super fit and you like running marathons, yeah. but you also just want to be pampered, you don't want to, at the end of the day, have to put your tent up. I suppose then, then, but 15 grand is quite a lot for a couple of days, really. For just pain, just pain, <laughs> just for pain. And you know, it's Scotland in uh, in April. April. It'll be wet. It'll be cold. Yeah, the scenery is spectacular. But honestly, like, can you 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 know, they probably can't do it in the summer because of the midges. Actually, yeah. it'd be pretty disastrous. Yeah, I'm but... coming round to the idea. I think I might start training for it. Really? Yeah. Gonna jump? You ever done a marathon? No. Just gonna jump to an ultra marathon? <laughs> yeah. I, I can't. <laughs> Vincent, come on! I can barely run for the bus. <laughs> well, actually. Uh, can't remember the last time I took a bus, but you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is that COVID or are you bougie? <laughs> Both. <laughs> Vincent McAvenny, I'm going to kick you out because I need to go and start my training. So thanks, thanks so much uh, for coming on. Uh, and uh, that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks also to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin, and the programme will return at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.